Hello, and welcome to the Sea Control Podcast. I'm Nathan Miller. Today, Jared Samuelson hosts Vincent P. O'Hara and Trent Hone. They discuss their most recent edited volume, Fighting in the Dark, Naval Combat at Night, 1904 through 1944. Jonathan Selling edited and produced today's episode. Simsec is looking for a volunteer to join our technical team and support our web operations. We're looking for someone with a background in WordPress implementation and support, as well as knowledge in web hosting and networking. Some knowledge of identity management and security operations is also helpful. Please reach out to content at simsec.org to share your background and discuss. I would like to pause here to highlight our local chapters. Whether you are in South Korea, Egypt, Singapore, France, New York, India, or the Caribbean, chances are there's a Simsec local chapter near you. You can find a full listing of local chapters and contact information on our website at simsec.org. So if you are interested, please reach out. Finally, I want to take the opportunity to recommend our partners in the Simsec podcast network, The Bilge Pumps. You can find Alex, Jamie, Drack, and a pile of iron brew bottles wherever you download your podcasts. And with that, Kimber's Men. You're listening to Sea Control, hosted by the Center for International Maritime Security. Aloha, shimmies, and welcome back aboard Sea Control. My guests today are the editors of Fighting in the Dark, Naval Combat at Night, 1904-1944, Vincent P. O'Hare and Trent Hone. Gentlemen, welcome. Uh, Vince, you haven't been on with us before, so we're going to start with you today. Could you tell your audience a little bit more about yourself, please? Okay, well, thank you, Jared, for having me today. I My name is Vincent P. O'Hara. I am a naval historian. I publish primarily with Naval Institute Press. <laughs> I'm, I'm at a loss for words to describe myself, apparently. I, I, I America's preeminent historian of the, the war in the Mediterranean? I mean, is that... Is that fair? It's like you're the one that I always go to when I want to look up something about the Mediterranean. That well, seems to be where your focus that. has been. My focus has been on World War II. It's been mostly uh, late 20th or early 20th century naval history. I'm, I was originally fascinated more by naval operations, perhaps, but my orientation over the last 10 to 20 years has been, has trended towards naval technology. Uh, doctrine, some of the reasons why navies fight the way they fight. And I'm, I'm very much into comparative analysis. I'm, I'm interested in the story of the U.S. Navy in the Pacific, of course. It's, you know, such a story, but I'm also interested in the story of Italy and the Mediterranean, or perhaps the sea power conflict that Peru and Ecuador fought in 1941, which is a fascinating mini, mini case of, of, um, sea power in action. And these things interest me. The whole process of fighting in the dark is is a spinoff of that interest, I believe. It's it's how navies do things, how navies do things compared to each other, and this is this has been my my fascination and my orientation when pursuing my my love for naval history. All right, I'm making a note about the Purdue Ecuador 1941 thing. You caught me off guard with that. That's something I have never heard of before, and we we'll circle back to it offline here because i'm definitely going to want to talk to you about that um Trent, welcome back could you remind the audience about your background please sure and thank you for for having me back again it's a pleasure to be here it's a pleasure to be here with you and and with vince uh this collaboration was uh was a joy and i was really glad to be part of it i am also uh, a naval historian my focus has been primarily the united states navy in the first half of the 20th century i like to describe it as sort of from the spanish-american war up through 
uh, the end of World War II. And the, the lens that I typically uh, apply to that is with organizational uh, learning, uh, doctrinal development, tactical innovation has been a very good vehicle for that. So that's where I got started. But more recently, I've found ways to dovetail it uh, more effectively with the, with the day job. Uh, so uh, naval history is not what I do to, to, to make a living. I am a, a management consultant that looks at technology and how organizations can make more effective use of it to either go about their work better, uh, accomplish their missions more effectively, or or to learn and, and innovate faster. And so one of the things that I enjoy about uh, what I've chosen to do with naval history is I, I look for ways in which organizations, particularly the United States Navy and its subunits, have done that in, in the past, trying to identify or uh, draw out, elucidate lessons that could be applicable, not just for understanding the historical context, but for how we might help organizations learn and innovate more effectively today. Well, thank you both again for coming aboard. Uh, as a reminder to the listeners, all opinions are our own and not reflective of any institution with which we might be otherwise associated. So chapter three of this work on the British Navy's evolution as night fighters was contributed by James Goldrick. I believe this chapter represents his last published work. Uh, Vince, I think we talked about, I know you have something to say on the subject, so I'll ask first for you to share how you knew the Admiral and any thoughts on his place and discussions like this one and Trent, if you have anything to add, obviously you'll have an opportunity, but Vince, please. Well, I think um, James Goldrick has been one of the outstanding naval historians writing in this, in this uh, last 20 years. I knew of his work, of course. I, I remember writing a work with Lynn, one of the co-authors in Fighting in the Dark about World War II combat. And James had written this wonderful, wonderful article about the use of coal in naval combat and how fine Welsh coal gave the British a, an advantage over other navies at that time. And just the, the depth of detail, the, 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 some of the alleyways that he walked down in his analysis were just wonderful. And I contacted James. I, I can't remember the very first time, but over the course of my, my dealings, I tend to be, I tend to be, um, a little forward in, in reaching out to people that I, I want to, I see value in and I want to talk to. And James turned out to be eminently approachable. I mean, he's a two star admiral. He commanded NATO forces. He's, a massively respected historian, but he's also he was also very approachable, very very kind, and he agreed to come to San Diego or stop by San Diego on a trip back in 2019 to be the keynote speaker for a new organization that which we had started and Trent participated in that conference. I remember um, it was um, quite a, quite a few eminent people appeared. Um, I, Craig Simons attended. Um, we had Michael Whitby, of course. We had. Um, you know, other folks. It was the first the first meeting of the Western Naval Historical Association, and James was the keynote speaker. And I had the privilege and the honor of, of attending to James over the course of three days. And that solidified our relationship and, and made it much easier to approach him to um, participate in this particular project, which he, you know, graciously and kindly agreed to do. And Trent, you probably want to add to that, I imagine. Sure. Yeah, that conference was a wonderful seed. I mean, we can see a number of us who ended up writing in the book, uh, attending there, right? You just mentioned well, yourself, me, uh, James Goldrick, uh, Michael Whitby. Stephen was there. Stephen yeah. Brockman was there too. Yeah. So, so quite a few of us. The, the, the book wasn't a concept at that time, but you know, that established certain relationships. 
And I was impressed. That conference was the first chance I had uh, to meet uh, James Goldrake. And I was impressed with uh, his, how approachable he was. You know, it was very easy to to have a conversation with him about these topics, about naval history, about these ideas. He he wasn't wasn't aloof at all. No, because not at all. Everything that he'd done. Uh, I mean, I, I, there are people who have achieved similar things who who can be that way, but he wasn't that way at all. Very down to earth, very practical, and very willing uh, to share his thoughts, uh, to uh, give his opinion. And and you see that I think in what we've produced in Fighting the Dark. I mean, there is the third chapter that has his name on it, and that's his. Uh, but he also, you know, we would periodically get together through through the, the authors through the course of writing. Uh, and exchange ideas, talk about how our chapters are going. And so uh, James was very good at offering the rest of us feedback, sharing his thoughts. And so some of his ideas found their way into the introduction and the conclusion and helped make the whole work better. So one of the things that I think readers should should understand is, yes, you know, uh, Goldrick wrote the third chapter, but his his stamp is on it, on the entire thing in a way, uh, because it, it wouldn't have been the same book without him. Well, let's talk about the book. Uh, Trent, I'll pose this question to you first. And again, Vince, any, anything that you want to add on top, is, you're more than welcome to do so. Uh, why did you decide the subject of naval combat at night needed its own book? Well, I thought it would be a very interesting topic. Vince, in his introduction, said that he's been you know, writing and thinking about technology and the influence of technology. And, and that is where I think start, some of the germ of this was. We, we thought this would be narrow enough uh, to allow us to understand the development of uh, tactics and technology in a particular challenge, you know, how how do navies fight at night in the context of the 20th century when so many new technologies are being introduced? We talked about a lot of them in the introduction: uh, radio, searchlights, radar, the uh, automotive torpedo. All these things are changing the dynamics of how ships and navies could potentially use their weapons at night. And so we thought it could be a compelling story. Many of us have written about night fighting in one context or another, usually uh, embedded in, in some other some other history uh, or in, in a particular article that is that is more narrow in focus. But we thought we could we could tie it together and we could make this arc. Uh, we could talk about how different navies uh, building on their context and their existing knowledge could uh, try to integrate these technologies at night uh, in order to uh, learn and, and, and fight better. And so um, we thought that that was a useful thing to do. And we got an interesting group of people together to, to, to do it with us. And so I, I didn't wholly anticipate it at the beginning, but I feel like we got to, to some uh, powerful themes one of which that I really welcomed as I saw it coming out in, in uh, the, the chapters and then in what Vince and I wrote in the introduction and conclusion is, is how important strategic context is on the development of uh, tactics and, and doctrinal development. Uh, oftentimes in our analysis, we tend to assume that tactics can be more pure and they can be divorced from that context. But I, I think how we, we showed uh, through the various chapters in the arc of this book, how that that is often a mistaken assumption, and I think that's quite useful. Yeah, I'd like to, I'd like to expand upon that just a little bit. Uh, first of all, the the book came together as an act of serendipity, almost almost overnight. In fact, in the course of an afternoon, almost 
with a three-way three-way email conversation between Trent, myself, and and one of the authors, Michael, who um, declined to uh, take on any of the editing roles. And you know, he's probably the smartest one of the three of us. But but there you go. It for me, a lot of it had to do with the way that that different navies approach the same job, the same task, and obviously. Obviously, a lot of this difference had to do with their strategic imperatives, with their the missions that they 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 foresaw for their navies, and the fact that most of this or a lot of this was speculative, I think, also increased the the interest and increased the value of the of the analysis. I mean, to take a simple example, the British explored night fighting, seeking an advantage. They felt that they could they could um, exploit the opportunity of fighting in the dark. And use it to gain an advantage over their enemies. The Japanese the same way. Whereas the Italians, they saw night combat as something to be avoided all the way up through the beginning of World War II. I mean, they they had a use for night combat, but in a very specific, narrow sense. And their their interest was in avoiding night combat. So for them, the story becomes: What do you do when you're faced with the need to evolve? When you're faced with the with the imperative? Of changing your your tactics or your doctrine because the enemy is doing something which you cannot counter, and so there, there there's that part of the story as well. How different different organizations, different military organizations approached similar imperatives and came up with different answers, and that's particularly of interest today because we have a situation where navies are sitting on top of technology which has been developed over the last fifty plus years but has never been used in peer to peer combat. And I say peer-to-peer combat is being important because it's one thing facing an enemy which can fire back at you with weapons that are equivalent to your own, as it is to, like, for example, um, chasing around Iranian speedboats that that are harassing your tankers. I mean, it's two different things. So it's been a long time since navies have had to face each other in peer-to-peer combat, and what's going to happen? Who knows? So it's not just the details of how the weapons work; it's the details of how the navies evaluate the weapons, how they respond to challenges, how they respond to defeat, for example. And you don't, you know, you don't, can't respond to defeat until you're defeated. So there's a lot of uncertainty right now, and I think that there's value in looking back how navies grappled, grappled with similar problems uh, 50, 60, 70, 80 years ago. And that's part of the theme of the book, is, is, is bringing to the forefront how these problems were, were addressed and solved. Yeah, just to... Oh, go ahead, for a second, Jerry. Yeah, yeah. Well, it, Vince, you made me think of something, which is that you know we look back uh, and we tend to think you know because now there's uh, an accepted way to do things, like to use radar at night, for example, mm-hmm. and, and there are patterns that have been established. But back in the early days, those patterns didn't exist, and different navies were trying different things. Even within navies, different ships were trying different things to to make use of of radar uh, most effectively, or some of these other technologies. And you can see that variability that eventually gets gets you know worn out uh, but i think suggesting that we are in a similar time where some of these technologies haven't been tested or tested as thoroughly as they would be in peer-to-peer combat um i think that's i think that's a very useful thing to do thank you it's, it's the essence it's the essence of of the book in some respects it's you know you don't you don't read this stuff to um it's not marvel comics you, there there are certain certain indicators which point towards very real problems we face today and these problems are, are are significant. You know, if we if we start shooting against China, I mean, 
we, we want to know what we're doing as best as we can. And if we can't look to the past for guidance, then shame on us. Well, Vince, you started your chapter with a vignette featuring an Axis convoy ambushed by a Royal Navy patrol at night. Can you recount that vignette and then what it highlights about night fighting that you found to be, quote unquote, universal throughout the book? Wow, that's a big question. Um <laughs> Yeah, the, the, the vignette had to do with a, a convoy of 25 small motor sailors and fishing craft that the Germans were using to bring troops to the island of Crete, which had been subject of a, of a paratroop drop, paratroop drop. Uh, the Royal Navy had sworn, the British Royal Navy had sworn that, you know, no, no enemy ships shall land troops on, on this island. The convoy was escorted by a single Italian torpedo boat, which is a small, you know, think of it in terms of a destroyer escort, but it's, it's actually less than that. And it was confronted by a pair of British light cruisers, which uh, were 10 times larger, and three British destroyers, which were only three times larger. And what happened was the, the uh, cruisers and the destroyers, which had radar, cruised around the convoy for a couple of hours, shot up everything they could see, um, unfortunately, they couldn't see that much because the, the craft were small. It was dark. It was a dark night. The weather wasn't all that great. So they're going back and forth at 20, 25 knots, uh, shooting at what they can see. Uh, it's a lot of smoke, a lot of visibility is being degraded. They sail away after a little bit more than an hour, believing that they had sunk the entire convoy and put 400 or 4,000, excuse me, 4,000 Germans into the sea. This is how it was reported by, um, by Churchill, uh, the day afterwards, in tremendous victory. Well, in point of fact, um, they did sink eight of the 25 ships. They did, they did put 300 and some odd Germans into the sea, but they did nowhere near as well as they thought they did because they had no way of, of, of analyzing what was happening or, or assessing it or, or accumulating the information of what they saw and integrating it. It was just momentary flashes, flash, flash, flash. A uh, burst of light, an explosion, another burst of light, another explosion. You repeated, repeated, repeated. And then you, you sail away, you know, thinking, well, we've done a great job here. Well, they did a good job. They didn't do as well as they thought they did. The Italian torpedo boat um, fired torpedoes that missed. It took several hits, but it didn't sink, and it was, it survived to fight again another day. But the point of the, the point of the matter is pure confusion. The British found the enemy. They, they thought they, they thought they eliminated it. They didn't. The, uh, convoy was largely, well, not largely, but mostly intact. And this is, for me, this is night combat. You, you have to, first of all, it's impossible to know what you've done. It's, it's impossible to, um, to know exactly who the enemy is, the size of the enemy. It's uncertainty and confusion, I guess, are the two words which would summarize the experience of night combat and how you how you succeed in an environment of uncertainty and confusion and how you minimize that uncertainty and confusion is the essence of the art and this is this is the lesson that the the British had to learn and they were much better at it. My vignette happens in 1941 in May of 1941, so they they got much better at night combat as time went forward, and um, so did the Italians for that matter, but. But this is how it stood at that time, confusion, uncertainty, and, and learning how to master that to the best effect. 
Thanks. Uh, Trent, I'm going to ask you to, if you could just file away that question on sort of universal lessons, I'll ask you that a, a little bit later here. I wrote down a few notes as Vince was talking, but Vince, what sort of systemic difficulties did the Regio Marina face as they sought to become proficient night fighters? And how much time did they spend fighting a night? How did their doctrine and equipment evolve over the course of the war? Well, in the beginning, they saw one specific need for fighting at night, and that was offensively using small expendable craft like motor torpedo boats and these these small torpedo boats to to attack enemy enemy shipping at night in the Mediterranean in the very specific context of of their geography and their environment. And their their problem their their big naval problem was to stop enemy transit through the Sicilian Straits and through the Central Mediterranean. And they figured they could do this with small ambush craft at night. They saw, they thought that it was impossible for a convoy at night to be detected by enemy forces. So they thought that there was no need to practice any sort of night doctrine for the defense of traffic, for the defense of convoys. They saw no need for, for, um, larger groups of, of ships, um, cruisers or destroyers operating at night because of the command and control problems. They, they saw no easy way to control ships at night. And so they decided to just avoid it. If a, um, if a task force is cruising at night, the cruisers were supposed to lead, not the destroyers, so that they could, they could, um, turn away if encountering enemy forces and the destroyers could come up and, and take care of it. I mean, this is, this is backwards to the solutions that the British, uh, for example, or the Japanese came up with. You send your light forces out front. To scout, you know, it seems seems obvious, but um, it wasn't to the Regia Marina. So there, there you go. They developed. They they learned that they needed to fight at night, especially after the Battle of Matapan, where where a pair of Italian heavy cruisers were ambushed by German battleships at night, and the, the British battleships got in the first first salvos from four thousand yards. It's, it's obvious what happened. After that, they strenuously um, tried to develop an, uh, a, a, um, an ability for their fleet to fight at night, and it was a long process. They had no radar until um, after Matapan when they learned that 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 the Germans, as a matter of fact, had developed uh, shipborne radar. That, that came as a surprise to them. And after a year, the Germans gave them a couple sets that, that they could they could um, put it on their own ships. But they, they, they developed gunfire tactics to develop, uh, maneuvering tactics. They had to practice this stuff and they, they thought they got a lot better. Uh, by the end of 1941, they thought they had the ability. They were assigning heavy cruisers to protect convoys at night. Unfortunately, they found out they did not have the ability having an entire convoy destroyed by British surface forces, even though the escort far, far outnumbered the British. It was command and control. You know, it was, it was the, the need to seek certainty. It was kind of a, kind of a mindset that the Italians didn't have. They, you cannot be certain at night. There's no way you can do it. And if you're a force that's seeking certainty, uh, you're going to be disappointed. It's a, it's a long story and I don't want to, I don't want to, you know, go into too many, too much detail here. It's, it's very well plotted out, um, in the, in the, um, chapter that I wrote with my co-author Enrico Chernuski, who's an Italian gentleman and provided much of the, um, much of the material from the Italian archives that went behind this, you know, into writing this chapter. 
So it's 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 a process that that's one particular Navy had to go through. It was different process than what the Americans faced, different problems than what the Americans faced, for example, or the Japanese. And I think the way that Italy solved these problems is is fascinating. And by the end of the, by the end of the war, by the end of their involvement, I, I closed the vignette of an Italian light cruiser, which is equipped for night combat, which has radar, which has the um, the sensors, the radar detectors that it needed, the electronics. And was able to face British forces at night and defeat them. And so it's a process. And that process um, came a little bit late and slow for Italy, but it, they, they arrived there as just as just the same as the Americans did in their own fashion, in their own way. So you mentioned an Italian collaborator. I'm going to go briefly off topic here because this is just sort of a historian's methodology question I have for you. Because I mentioned sure. before the work that you've done on the uh, on the Italian Navy. So yeah, got my copy of Struggle for the Middle Sea right here in front of me. Was, which which has been translated into Italian, I might add. Absolutely, but it's it's pretty much you and this guy James Sadkovich writing about the Regia Marina in English and man. Uh, me finding other sources on that was that was a heck of a challenge. Don't so, forget Jack Green. Look, look, oh, look. You're right. You're right. I've absolutely forgotten Jack Green, and his book is uh, in the other room. But uh, <laughs> like, there's not a lot of you writing about the Italian Navy in World War II. So what what is the particular challenge of finding information? Is it just the Italian archival system, or is the interest because the U.S. wasn't quite as involved there? The interest for me was was a curiosity developed about 30, 35 years ago. And I, I was reading accounts of, of the Mediterranean, how, how the, the British established moral supremacy after the Battle of Calabria and all this, that, and the other. And I was reading the accounts and I go, I, I obviously do not understand what moral ascendancy means because I don't see it. I just don't know, do not see it, which developed a big curiosity in me. It's, trying to find out more and more and more about what went on in the Mediterranean. And as you pointed out, you know, Sadkovich was a revelation. I thought, oh, you know, somebody's actually writing about this stuff. Uh, as time went forward, I, I encountered my Italian co-author about 25 years ago. So it's been, been quite a long time. And, you know, he had definite ideas about what was going on. And we don't, we did not agree on everything, but we certainly um, shared the passion and the curiosity we were able to establish a fairly fruitful uh, relationship through time. I, I, at this point, I have pretty much free access to the Italian archives. I'm, I'm a, considered a collaborare for Storia, official Storia Marina Militare, and so if I if I ask them for stuff, they send it to me, which is which is a blessing. Um, so it's it's been a long road and a long process, but I, I feel like. The state of of information re regarding to the Italian participation in World War II is, has been transformed from what it was twenty years ago, and and there's you know those jokes about the glass bottomed boats, you know how does an Italian admiral review his fleet, et cetera, et cetera, don't have you know they're not quite as funny as they used to be because they're not they're not um you know it's it's just we're in a different world as far as the historiography of World War II at sea is concerned. So, Trent, your chapter focused on the conflict between the Imperial Japanese Navy, who I believe were recognized as the best night fighters, <clears throat> and the U.S. Navy, probably the most technically advanced Navy, from 1942 on. Uh, how'd that conflict start and then change over the course of the Guadalcanal campaign? Yeah, sure. So it, it's probably 
Hey, important to mention that there's there's really two chapters to talk about the Pacific. There's John Parshall's, which uh, just precedes mine, and he focuses on the Imperial Japanese Navy and and talks basically covers the time period up through the end of the Guadalcanal campaign. And mine, I I, I discuss it because it's important for what comes later. But then I focus my attention in more detail on uh, 1943 and, and 1944. Uh, when some of the lessons of, of uh, Guadalcanal get integrated into the U.S. Navy's tactics and, and doctrine. But to uh, to start with the, the Guadalcanal campaign um, and answer your question, one of the one of the things that I wanted to to uh, make sure to impart uh, to readers with the chapter is that there was extensive preparation in the United States Navy for for night combat. Uh, going fairly far back, uh, at least to the Atlantic Fleet torpedo, torpedo flotilla before the United States enters World War One. So, uh, 1913 is, is when you can really see some of that start to take off. And they had focused on something called the night search and attack. This idea being you would use destroyers or light forces to search for an enemy formation and then attack it. Now, there are assumptions that get baked into that idea. That is that you, you know, you have to search and that you have to not just find the enemy formation, but penetrate a defensive screen so that you can uh, attack the heavy ships at the center of the formation with torpedoes. And over the course of the interwar period, as the U S Navy's tactics become more sophisticated and more practiced as new ships enter the fleet with, uh, increased capabilities, one of the things that starts to happen in the exercises that explore how a night search and attack might work is that the screening forces become more capable. They're better at sighting, approaching destroyers, in part because destroyers get larger, uh, but also uh, because their techniques are superior. And so destroyers become accustomed to this idea that, well, Rather than just sneaking through an enemy screen, we have to fight our way through an enemy screen now. We're going to use our our guns uh, first, and then once we're in the heart of the enemy formation, then we can use our torpedoes to destroy you know battleships, carriers, or or other heavy ships and the like. So this there's a, a, a reinforcement of what ultimately proves to be not the best approach, uh, which is to to start shooting with guns first. Uh, and this is what you see in the Guadalcanal campaign. It's part of the criticism that gets offered of how the U.S. Navy was approaching things. In part, though, so there's this this belief that, that guns will be important, uh, but it's also tempered by uh, immediate lessons. So the Guadalcanal campaign, in terms of night battles, begins with the debacle at the Battle of Sabo Island. Four Allied cruisers are sunk. The Japanese prove extremely capable. They are not detected by uh, SC the early search radars uh, that have been uh, put out to to, to to try to find them. And so that drives a search for new solutions. Oh, well, some of the established approaches don't work. What are we going to do? And Rear Admiral Norman Scott introduces a very compact linear formation, essentially abandoning the idea that we're going to use uh, destroyer torpedoes as a significant weapon. And still, we instead, we'll use guns from cruisers and destroyers together. Uh, it works to a certain extent. Uh, at the Battle of, of Cape Esperance in October 1942. Uh, but it doesn't prevent one of the things that uh, Scott is trying to uh, achieve, which is that, uh, you know, he's trying to avoid friendly fire. Uh, and and uh, Destroyer Duncan is, is subject to friendly fire and potentially sunk by it. Uh, and so the 
officers who fight in these battles are seeking alternatives. They're exploring and they're experimenting. And this is one of the features of the U.S. Navy's tactical development uh, on the eve of World War II. There's a great deal of ability to explore alternative solutions and to try out new things. Scott does that. Callahan does that. Uh, Rear Admiral uh, Willis Lee does that in in his uh, notable battle, uh, the night of 14-15, November 1942. She's able to win, uh, primarily due to the accurate gunfire of his flagship, uh, Battleship Washington. So that's one of the key ingredients that the United States takes into the war. Now, that variability uh, in terms of tactics and doctrine had been based on an assumption that some of the formations, pre-war formations, would be relatively stable. So you would practice as a cruiser division or as a destroyer squadron. You would get familiar with each other, the the captains uh, within that group, and they would know how to fight together. The Guadalcanal campaign uh, renders that, uh, well, it reveals that that's an erroneous assumption. Uh, because under the pressures of, of a two-front full war, the U.S. Navy starts just throwing together uh, ships into different formations. They they call them scratch teams, and they don't perform terribly well. And so, ooh, variability allows us before the war to discover new tactics and, and doctrine and learn more effectively. But during the war, uh, it becomes a deficiency. So you know, we fall back on how we've been trained. We can't fight as cohesive formations. And so this drives a search for solutions not just by the officers who are fighting these battles, but also at a higher level uh, at the Pacific Fleet uh, itself, Admiral Nimitz's headquarters. And so by November, when the decisive battles of the Guadalcanal campaign are being fought in late 1942, his uh, command is issuing two new tactical manuals, which are extremely important. And one is a revised approach to the night search and attack, which harkens back to this idea of approach the enemy in a concealed way, use radar to try to reach firing positions, fire torpedoes first, uh, and then use guns once the torpedoes have arrived at the target or you have obviously been sighted. And if possible, coordinate the attack from multiple uh, from multiple uh, locations, multiple uh, divisions coordinating together. And the other tactical manual issued during this time is it calls for the introduction of the combat information center, the CIC, which at this point didn't exist. Uh, it is, you mentioned themes earlier, uh, Jared, and I think, you know, one of the ones that uh, Vince was pointing out is just how difficult it is to understand what's going on at night. And so this challenge of making sense of what is happening, understanding what's going on around the ship or around the formation is something that you see throughout all the chapters throughout this time period. And the CIC is an attempt to solve that problem because there's so much information available now from new radars and other sensors that it is possible, or at least the U.S. Navy thinks it's possible, uh, to take advantage of that, to be able to make sense of the information that's being provided by the radars. But you can't do it in the minds of radar operators. You can't do it in the minds of commanding officers. It has to be offloaded to this team that collaborates, every sailor has a role to try to build a model of what the combat around the ship actually looks like. And that's that's the main objective of the Combat Information Center. So these are beginning to be introduced in mid-1943 when the next series of night battles are fought farther up the Solomon Camp, uh, Island chain in response to the landings in New Georgia. 
U.S. Navy doesn't do especially well in those, uh, in part because it doesn't fully take advantage of the capabilities of the CIC yet, and it is still wedded to the emphasis on gunfire, particularly cruiser gunfire. But by November of 1943, the situation has changed dramatically. One of the reasons is that there is now a better understanding of the capabilities of Japanese torpedoes. So cruisers are being held at a greater distance. But by then, destroyers are operating in a way that is uh, in line with the new instructions issued from the Pacific Fleet in November 1942, using radar, approaching stealthily. Uh, you see this at the Battle of Cape St. George, which is uh, Arleigh Burke's famous victory at the end of November uh, 1943. And the Japanese by this time, although they are you know, quite skilled and quite capable, they don't have an equivalent to a CIC, and they don't have radar that is as capable as what the United States offers. And so Burke and others like him are able to, to capitalize on surprise in a way that the, that the, that the Japanese did at, at Savo Island. So in a sense, the campaign is sort of inverted. Uh, the tables have been turned. And that makes me think of another theme, which is uh, how fast these battles tended to move and the importance of time. And that harkens back to uh, Burke's admonition. You know, he was asked by a young officer uh, around the, the time of this fighting in, in 1943, you know, what's, what's the difference between a good officer and a poor one? And he thinks for a little bit and says, 10 seconds. You know, so how, how fast can you make sense of what's going on and then act? Uh, really, that is, that is uh, the concept. Yeah, there, uh, there, there's a German admiral which says a very similar thing. But you, you raise a really interesting point here, Trent, about the, um, the process that the U.S. Navy went through in, in learning that gunfire was not the ultimate answer. They had to better use their torpedoes in night combat. And it's, it's fascinating the fact that the Italians went through the same process, but in reverse. For them, they believed that torpedoes were going to be the key to night combat and that, that carefully aimed torpedoes, like, kind of like hunters taking sight on a deer was the, was the ticket to victory. And repeatedly they had torpedo attacks fail because it's really hard to hit an enemy ship at night with a torpedo. And for years and years this happened. They avoided gunfire at night because they believed that gunfire would, would um, reveal them to a superior enemy. And it was not until they learned that they needed to open fires as soon as they saw the enemy with every gun that could bear as fast as possible that they started gaining night success. And so it's, it's, it's interesting how everybody was trying to arrive at the same point, but they were starting from different positions and they had to employ different, different techniques or, or, practices like you know guns or torpedoes something as basic as that in order to um, advance down that road towards victory and the italians and americans did it in quite opposite fashion that reminds me of something that uh james goldrick put in his chapter that the, the the british had uh focused on or started to focus on uh in the interwar period i think it was abbreviated uh ipmo Immediate production of maximum output. Yes, 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 yes. yes. <laughs> For me, it's like an accounting term, first in, first out. But yeah, 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 immediate. <laughs> I mean, I don't think that's uh, fundamentally different than it. And I can't even remember which of your uh, co-authors contributed the chapter on the German Navy's sort of preparations for World War One, where they talked about the exactitude with which they expect their captains to employ their torpedoes. And each yes. torpedo should be treated like this very precious asset until they finally realize, like, no, that the best employment of these is to get them all in the water 
as many in the water at the same time as quickly as possible um, at some range, not necessarily right up close if you can, but you don't have to wait for the perfect shot. The perfect shot's not going to come. If you wait for the perfect shot, you're going to get sunk. And it's like you said, as much as possible, as soon as possible. Yes. We tried to shoot. I'm sorry. Go ahead. That's a, that's another theme, which is you know, almost all these navies come into the wars that they fight with a set of assumptions, and they have to be revised. They may not be as as wrong as what we were just talking about with the German navy before World War One. Well, you know, assuming that you know one torpedo per target is going to be sufficient and we'll be able to aim it precisely, and it'll will get close enough and it will hit. Right? Maybe maybe not that far off from reality, uh, but they they have assumptions that aren't quite right, and then they have to temper them. Right, combat experience has to lead to a revision of of approaches, and we see well, this not, time and again. It's not just not just testing your assumptions; it's having the intellectual honesty to, to mm. do those tests. Because let's face it, not all navies are equal in that respect, and not all navies were able to assimilate the lessons of combat effectively in World War II. And it's it's interesting to see side by side how the Japanese did it, how the Americans did it. You know, we know that the Japanese were, were were looking at the lessons and trying to trying to integrate those lessons, but unfortunately for them, they they had a system of reporting and of combat evaluation that that basically hid the lessons from them. In other words, they thought they did much better than they did, and they didn't want to lessen anybody's honor by saying by questioning, you know, claims of success. That that's just systemic in their system. Uh, the British tended to be better at that. I think the Americans were even better. The Italians were, were ruthlessly honest when it came to evaluating their performances at at um at night. And they, you know, they said, well, it would have been better if we'd done this stuff before the war, but we didn't, so let's let's get down to it now and do what we need to do. Well, and again to go back to your co author here, and again I can't remember who contributed the chapter and I don't have what the book You're is. Talking about Lennon and the Germans? Le- Len- probably. Len- Len- Leonard probably. Hines. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He, he mentioned a funding constraint very specifically related to the torpedoes. And I yeah. can't help but think of all the discussions that we're having today about, you know, what what our missile uh, missile purchases look like as we, uh, you know, look across the Pacific at potentially another adversary. And we have all these conversations like, OK, well, when did, when are we going to run out of missiles? Um, D- and the same thing is happening. <laughs> yeah. And the same thing is, you know, we're, we're seeing some of the same production challenges is. We look at what's going on in the Black Sea between Russia and Ukraine. So, you know, history doesn't repeat, but it rhymes. Um, the, the last thing that I wanted to ask about was, you know, the theme that came up to me as you were speaking earlier, Vince, was that you talked about the confusion of daylight and BDA. Uh, what it made me think is that naval combat is an inherently kind of transient in that no one holds the ground afterwards. So doing that battle damage assessment and figuring out what happened, you're usually able to figure out what happened for your side, but determining what happened to the other side if both forces were not necessarily trying to attempt to hold a specific piece of quote unquote ground, but were in transit from point A to point B or wherever they happen to be going. Um, that seems to me like something that never appropriately gets resolved as far as like how you actually do battle damage assessment. I'm just wondering, you know, how many of these admirals after the war were reading official histories like, Oh, that's what happened. All of them. But <laughs> no, we did win. <laughs> well, there's there's a there's a there's a tremendous literature. The Italians, I can I can speak with some knowledge on this. As soon as the war was over, um, the Italians, which which were by this time were a co belligerent force with with the British, uh, sent a series of questions 
to the to the British historical the admiralty saying, well, what happened here, 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 and here? We're talking like 50 pages of questions. And they got back very superficial, very brush office type answers. Um, and that created a lot of bad will and a lot of suspicion. And it was kind of like the seed of the, of the ongoing, and it's still ongoing, belief by some Italian historians that the British purposely distorted the history of the war by hiding damage, by hiding Italian successes. And yeah, so they were immensely curious. Uh, and it, the process of learning what happened went on for 10, 15 years. It was, it was, it was, um, and like I said, some people still refuse to believe that, that the HMS Warspite was not hit by an Italian battleship, the Battle of Calabria. And some people still believe that's true today. So that's, it's an ongoing process, as a matter of fact. Well, unfortunately, that's all that we have time for today. I'd like to thank my guest, Vincent P. O'Hara, Trent Hone. Trent, where can we find you online, and what are you working on next? I uh, I have a website, uh, although unfortunately I don't ha have uh, much capability to keep it up to date. The, the books are on uh, the Naval Institute Press's uh, website, so that's a good place to look. I also have a Twitter handle, although that uh, that site seems to be degrading relatively quickly, so... I'm not spending as much time on there as I used to. Uh, but yeah, and, um, you know, I'll, uh, try to, uh, appear on various YouTube channels and things like that where, when I get an opportunity to talk about these ideas or, uh, you know, this book, Fighting in the Dark or, or some of the others that I've written. Yeah, we'll see, uh, for your case, we'll, we'll have a link to it in the show notes, but Sea Control 209, we recorded with you and one of my former students, Sebastian Goldstein, talking about your book. Learning War, which goes uh, very in-depth into the way the U.S. Navy evolved, uh, not just in night fighting, but several other aspects over the course of World War II. Vince, where can we find you, and what's your next project? You can find me at theohara.com. I'll lowercase together, no apostrophes. I appear on some YouTube channels. In fact, I was on that World War II TV yesterday talking about the Battle of Casablanca. The Americans fired 8,802 shells at Casablanca and had 0.19% hits. There you go. Naval statistics in action. I'm working right now on a, a one-volume history of World War II at sea. Uh, not a traditional book. It's kind of a exploration of some of the unknown themes. I spend a quarter of a chapter on that war between Paraguay, excuse me, between Ecuador and, and, um, and Peru, for example, because it did take place during World War II and was was part of part of the the many campaigns, the famous battle between the French, the French state and Thailand, for example, of Cochang, another another thing. That example of stuff that I cover. So that's what I'm working on now. I, I look forward to reading that and uh, I will definitely be in touch with you about the Purdue Ecuador piece as well as anything else I find there a note here, but thank you both again for joining us to listeners. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next time.